Hello. Um, I'd also like to um, add my thanks to Charles for organising this conference. Um, what I'm going to talk about, and for inviting all of us, um, what I'm going to talk about is um, uh, is the um, political left in Britain and in Europe, and to address some questions about why the response of the left has to anti-Semitism has um, been so inadequate. Um, the first thing I want to say is that um, in the self-conception of um, the political left in Europe and in the United States, I think, um, the self-conception of the left is that it's anti-anti-Semitic. Um, they see themselves, we see ourselves, as anti-anti-Semitic, um, and it does raise a kind of quandary of given that the left sees itself as anti-anti-Semitic, why it has such difficulty in dealing with anti-anti-Semitism. Um, the first thing that seems to me to be sort of worth raising in this respect is that um, um, that anti-Semitism is seen on most sections of the left as a problem of the past. And the temptation has been to give the story of European anti-Semitism a happy ending and to pay tribute to the success, well this is one of the temptations, and to give, uh, pay tribute to the success of the new year in transcending its longest hatred. Anti-Semitism is tucked away safely in the past, overtaken by the defeat of uh, fascism, the fall of the Soviet Union, and the rise of the European Union. And particularly in the more liberal sections of the left, uh, there's a tendency to associate the um, rise of political anti-Semitism in the late 19th century and its reappearance as exterminatory, as genocidal anti-Semitism in the 20th century, to associate that with the prevalence of a particular period of European history, namely a period in which um, nationalism was prevalent, and especially the um, ethnic nationalism that was said to uh, take hold of Germany and Eastern Europe. So the more liberal wing of the left tends to see the new Europe as marking a new period in European history, one that spells the end of anti-Semitism as we know it. And in this reassuring narrative, the liberal left looks back to an era in which anti-Semites saw themselves as guardians of the ethnically pure nation-state and forward to a post-national Europe in which anti-Semitism is remembered only as a residual trauma or a kind of museum of peace. 
on the radical left, um, it's generally postulated that European racism is a recurring phenomenon that has deep roots in Europe's colonial experience. However, um, we are now told that anti-Semitism, we're also told that anti-Semitism was a racism of the past, also connected to the national period of European history. And as it's now given way to new forms of racism, especially Islamophobia, the race question, we are told, is no longer whether Jews can be good Germans or good French men and women, but whether Muslims can be good Europeans. This unreassuring narrative generally takes a skeptical view of the achievements of anti-racist movements in post-war Europe, but nonetheless shares the conviction with the liberal left that anti-Semitism has basically run its course. And what you get from both this sort of more liberal side of the left and the more radical side of the left is the factual claim that anti-Semitism is no longer a problem. Um, and this excludes it in the eyes of the left from the list of racisms that Europe now has to confront. Now, um, in both wings of the left, both liberal and radical, there are chinks in this particular armor. And particularly, um, uh, an awareness of the possibility of a regression in the form of um, ultra-nationalists and right-wing parties um, in many um, European countries. And they qualify, the left tends to qualify the view of anti-Semitism as a kind of past imperfect by expressing um, a justified alarm over the re-emergence of right-wing anti-Semitic parties. But, so when anti-Semitism takes a form that's recognized, it takes a form today that's recognizable in terms of the past, there's some recognition. On the whole, though, um, um, the anti-anti-Semitism of the left um, is, looks to anti-Semitism itself as a problem of the past. I think this is the first point I want to make. But then this raises the question of, um, of um, what happens when people say that anti-Semitism is not a problem of the past, but is a problem of the present. And the corollary, I think, of seeing anti-Semitism as a problem in the past has been, first of all, denial that anti-Semitism, if people raise the question of anti-Semitism today, a denial of its um, uh, existence in one form or another. There's a lot to be said about denial, which I've written out elsewhere. Um, but hostility to those who um, see anti-Semitism as a problem. So, hostility is directed at um, contemporary anti-anti-Semites, um, who, um, and particularly at new anti-Semitism theory as a particular mode, a particular kind of anti-anti-Semitism. And the hostility of the left to 
uh, new anti-Semitism theory, quote, which is often um, uh, kind of um, uh, all-embracing category to fix what they to 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 conceptualise what they don't like. Um, the wrong-headedness of this kind of anti-antisemitism, I think, has got three different, um, from the point of view of the left, has three different um, uh, dimensions. One is the sheer claim that antisemitism is present in Europe in the here and now. The second is that um, the left itself is not immune to anti-Semitic temptations. Um, and the third, of course, is bringing in the whole Israel question. Um, Anti-anti-Semites um, uh, within the sort of new anti-Semitism framework, what we've shown is that a discriminatory logic exists in Europe um, according to which Israel is depicted as a uniquely illegitimate state and Zionism as a uniquely noxious ideology, supporters of Israel as a uniquely harmful lobby, and memory of the Holocaust as a uniquely self-serving reference to the past. Now the fear we express um, is that behind this so-called critique of Israel, we actually find the re-emergence of old anti-Semitic tropes in a new guise, blood libel, global conspiracy, secret power, world domination, indifference to the suffering of others, and an exclusive and obsessive concern over um, the um, self-interest of so-called self-interest of Jews. So, um, why is it then? I mean, you would expect an anti-racist left to say, okay, this is another form of racism which we have to deal with. So why is it that the left critics, who also declare themselves to be anti-anti-Semitic, consider this particular form of anti-anti-Semitism so unacceptable. And let's just go through um, descriptively some of the reasons that are given. Um, this is by no means less. First, yeah. Uh, could you just briefly redefine anti antisemitism? Just a brief definition for those who missed it. Um, anti antisemitism as a, as a form of. Um, Critique of anti-Semitism. Is it a, a denial? Is it the denying the existence of anti-Semitism today? Anti-anti-Semitism is opposition to anti-Semitism. Very simply. Against anti-Semitism. Against anti-Semitism. Thank you. Yeah. Um, okay. So let me rehearse some of the reasons. Um, they say that contemporary anti-Semites. Um, first, exaggerate the extent of anti-Semitism in Europe. Secondly, obscure the existence of other and much worse forms of racism in Europe, especially, of course, racism against Muslims. Thirdly, they say that we attack the 
conceptual framework that allows us to see other forms of racism, other forms of racism, such as the language of Islamophobia, um, and then um, they say the whole problem of uh, ignoring or wiping out other forms of racism is then accentuated by the propensity of contemporary anti-Semites to stigmatize whole categories of people as anti-Semitic, be they Muslims, Arabs, the left, liberals, even uh, the European <coughs> Union itself. In the eyes of the left, this kind of othering of anti-Semites manifests its own racism. <coughs> they maintain that in the spirit of exclusivity, contemporary anti-Semites, misappropriate the history and memory of the Holocaust to privilege the suffering of Jews over the suffering of other people. Um, and in so doing, we are said to reveal ourselves indifferent to any suffering other than our own. Crucially, perhaps, they say that contemporary anti-antisemites mainly invoke the charge of anti-Semitism for essentially dishonest reasons, especially to obstruct and defeat uh, criticism of Israel, and actually what contemporary anti-antisemites do is debase the language of anti-Semitism itself. So that's the sort of critique. Now all this, of course, has a kind of smokescreen quality of not dealing with the problem of anti-Semitism itself. Um, the first thing I would say about this um, left critique of anti-antisemitism is that, morally speaking, the universal principles um, it advances are um, basically, for most of us, non-controversial, almost banal. Of course, we ought not to exaggerate the extent of antisemitism in Europe in order to make it appear worse than this actually is. Of course, we should not stigmatize whole collectivities or peoples as anti-Semitic, be they Muslims or Europeans or indeed the left. Um, of course, we should not privilege the struggle against anti-Semitism to the exclusion of that against other forms of racism. And of course, we should not deploy the Holocaust to wipe out the sufferings of other people. Of course, we should not use the charge of anti-Semitism to provide a dishonest defense of Israel. And of course, we should not devalue the coinage of the word anti-Semitism by overusing or abusing it. Um, but who then is the target of these criticisms? Who are the they who are said to be um, sensitive? Sorry, I'm feeling very unwell. I think I'm going to stop for the moment. I'm feeling um, very faint. Um, I think I'm going to stop. And um, um, 
I'm David Furge. I teach sociology at Goldsmiths in the University of London. And I want to talk a little about, actually not what most of this conference has been about, which is things that happen in the Middle East, things that happen within predominantly Arab or Muslim state. I want to talk more about what happens in Britain and in Europe and in my world. My world is, I'm a sociologist, I read the Guardian newspaper, I'm a member of my trade union, I come out of the left, I'm still in the left, and I want to talk about anti-Semitism in that world. Now, first thing I want to say is this, one can sit down with a, with a bunch of activists or scholars who are thinking about um, the Palestinians and who are rightly concerned about Israeli human rights abuses against Palestinians and rightly might be concerned about the occupation of the West Bank and of Gaza. And one can sit with them and one can explain, one can go through some of the ideas, one can explain why a boycott of Israel and nobody else may be anti-Semitic or may be anti-Semitic in effect. And one can explain that they should avoid blood libels and one could explain that they should avoid conspiracy theory and then somebody's likely to put their hand up and say, I can understand that. I can understand that one should avoid anti-Semitism, but how can one really hurt them? And it seems to me that that, that wish, that hunger to prevent Israel from getting away with something is quite a remarkable phenomenon. I want to start by, I, I want to make a number of points. I'm here and there, and I, and I don't want to repeat everything that everybody's said. One of the facts about the world we live in is that racism and racist discourse, including anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic discourse, is usually difficult to spot. Very rarely do we have a racist running around saying, I hate blacks, or we have a, an anti-Semite running around saying, I hate Jews, or do we have an Islamophobe running around saying, I hate Muslims. It's very rare. So it's a fact of the world in which we live that one has to use judgment and knowledge and experience to find and to see racism. And I include anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is very rarely obvious and one needs to be able to apply criteria and judgment to find it and to recognize it. And it's evidently highly contested where it lies. And there's another fact about the world in which we live, is that the important problem isn't necessarily in whether this or that particular claim or this or that particular act or this or that particular speech is racist or anti-Semitic. Because what I'm interested in is a kind of, I'm interested in a discourse in which every element may be anti-racist or anti-anti-Semitic, yet which can as a whole, in effect, be racist or be anti-Semitic, or have racist or anti-Semitic effects. So we're living in a world where racism and anti-Semitism is sometimes difficult to spot. And we might, in this conference, think anti-Semitism is very easy to spot, but I'm here to tell you that most people around the world find it very difficult. And conversely, 
I suspect many people might find other forms of racism and bigotry difficult to pin down and to spot. And this is a battle over discourse, it's a battle of, over ways of thinking. In Britain, it's not a battle on the streets, anti-Semitism. Jews are not at threat in the street. Jews are not a threat from being excluded from British society. Jews are not a threat from being excluded from professions. There is no anti-Semitic party ready to take power. This is not a physical threat to Jews. The anti-Semitism we see in Britain is on the level of discourse. It's on the level of ways of thinking, and it manifests itself almost entirely around ways of thinking about Israel and Zionism. Excuse me, what about the number of attacks? Yes. Um, yes, I noticed that one of Dina's figures had 100, what for one year? 181 attacks in Britain and four in Spain. Now, I would put it to you that that tells us more about the CST's excellent work in counting attacks and less about what happens in Spain. <coughs> Last year there was a very big spike in anti-Semitic incidents in Britain. Part of the reason was because about 30 of those incidents were counted from anti-Semitic emails which were sent to me. Right? Now, even if there were 184 anti-Semitic incidents in Britain, I think that's very low. I think there were many, 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 many more anti-black racist incidents, anti-Muslim incidents. So, in my view, the importance of anti-Semitism at the moment is in the discourse, is in the ways of thinking. And moreover, in my view, it's not absolutely, it's not absolutely mainstream in Britain. Anti-Semitism doesn't manifest itself in the popular press or in popular television. It doesn't manifest itself in the right-wing press particularly. It manifests itself largely in my world, in the one that I described earlier on. So there is a subculture in which anti-Semitic ways of thinking are normalised. That subculture relates to the mainstream in rather alarming ways. And that way of thinking can become, is becoming in some ways normal. normal. For example, David Cameron, our new Prime Minister, who's uh, in some ways the most right-wing Prime Minister we've had for, for, for decades. David Cameron the other day was in Turkey toadying uh, to the regime and he said, he demanded of Israel that there should be free movement of people and goods in and out of Gaza. Astonishing. David Cameron wouldn't dream of allowing free movement of people or goods from Gaza into Britain, or from Afghanistan into Britain, or from Iraq into Britain, or from France into Britain. Wouldn't allow it. So there are all sorts of ways in which mainstream ways of thinking around the Israel-Palestine conflict are becoming, are manifesting themselves in the mainstream. But they're not a mainstream phenomenon, they're a phenomenon in a kind of subculture. Now there's a zeitgeist, there's a way of thinking. There's a, within that subculture, I think, there's a kind of, as I said, a hunger to prevent the Israelis getting away with it. And you can see that if you go to UCU Congress, actually, the, the academic trade union, you can feel the excitement, the frisson of excitement uh, when it comes to preventing the Israelis getting away from it. The, the, the frisson of excitement about the, the courage required to stand up and oppose 
the Zionist lobby, the Israel lobby. You can feel it. And what we're talking about is a rather difficult analysis. It's a discursive analysis. I think it's similar to the work that Stan Cohen did in the 1960s around the moral panic. Stan Cohen is a very well-known sociologist. And what was happening in the early 60s was that modern rockers were going down to Brighton, down the seaside on a bank holiday and fighting each other. And Stan Cohen said, yes, there is a thing here. But what's happened with this thing, this little thing, fight, if you fight on a bank holiday, is it's been blown up into a national moral panic about youth culture, about sexual liberation, about the 60s, about everything. He says that the, what happens on the, at the seaside on the bank holiday becomes symbolic of everything that everybody's worrying about. And I think within the kind of left and, uh, and liberal milieus in Britain and, and in Europe, I think there's a moral panic about Israel. I think Israel and Palestine is a thing. I think it's a real conflict. I think there are real human rights abuses on both sides and real bigotries on both sides. I think it's a real thing. But around that is a moral panic which prevents rational discussion and rational responses. So one of my key ideas is that what we have is a struggle over the boundaries of, of anti-racist discourse. If you raise the issue of anti-Semitism in Britain connected to Israel-Palestine <coughs> conflict, you will be portrayed as somebody who is committing a faux pas, who is being vulgar, who is being unscholarly, who is putting his own Jewish interest before all, who is raising it illegitimately in order to silence criticism of Israeli human rights abuses. In other words, the very act of raising the issue of anti-Semitism is very often, in quite subtle ways actually, pushed outside of the boundaries of polite anti-racist discourse. Conversely, of course, when we characterise something as anti-Semitic, if we say a boycott of Israeli academics is anti-Semitic, what we're doing, quite consciously, is we're saying this is not only mistaken, but the debate itself belongs outside of the boundaries of rational and anti-racist discourse. It's not that the boycott is wrong, it's that the question is a racist question, is an anti-Semitic question, and ought not to be asked. And when the question is asked, and when the discussion is had, it brings with it all sorts of anti-Semitic ideas and exclusions. The Union Congress in Britain, the, the, the Union of the Academics, at the Congress now there is no Jew left willing or able to oppose the idea of boycotting Israeli academia. The Jews have been pushed out, they've been bullied, they've been just made to feel it's not worth the bother, and some of them have been excluded by bureaucratic means. There is, when there's a debate in the UC Congress, which is sort of formally 
the representative body of British academics, there is no Jew there willing or able to oppose the boycott. There are many anti-Zionist Jews who are willing to say the boycott is a very good thing, the boycott is in keeping with Jewish ethics, we're in favour of the boycott, don't worry about anti-Semitism, but there are no Jews there. Okay. Now, those Jews haven't been killed, <laughs> gas. they haven't been sacked, they haven't been beaten up, yet they're not there. So, here's an interesting thing. I was talking to a colleague from Holland. I think most of you will know about the Carol Churchill play, um, Seven Jewish Children. It was a play about, it was a play about how it is that Jews can remain unconcerned about the killing of Palestinian children in Gaza. And the play was written from the imagination of Carol Churchill. Carol Churchill is not Jewish, she doesn't know what Jewish families are like, she's never done any research into Jewish families, yet she draws a fictional picture of what it's like to be in a Jewish family and how it is that the Holocaust drove us neurotic and therefore impels us to bring up our children in such a way as not to care about the suffering of Palestinian children. That's the play. Now, a colleague of mine was asked to go on a panel in Holland and I said to her, what was your reading of the play? Did you find it anti-Semitic? And she looked at me and she said, I couldn't say, I couldn't, she said, I can't call something anti-Semitic in Holland. It's too big. It's too much. Because of the Holocaust. I cannot call something like this anti-Semitic. Now here's an interesting thing. The, the act of calling something anti-Semitic is like, it's like thought to be so big and so strong like a nuclear bomb. And the act of calling something anti-Semitic often has the effect of, ex of exploding the whole field of discourse. So you can't have a rational discussion about whether Carol Churchill's play uses anti-Semitic motifs or whether it doesn't. Because raising the issue of anti-Semitism is already so big and so huge that it obliterates the whole field of discourse. So we don't have a rational debate, we have a struggle over the boundaries of legitimate discourse. The play is legitimate and the Jews are trying to push it illegitimately across the boundary on the one side, the play is anti-Semitic, and, and Carol Churchill is trying to bring anti-Semitism within the boundaries of legitimate discourse on the other. <coughs> The mechanism by which the raising of anti-Semitism is pushed outside of the, the boundaries of anti-racist discourse, I call the Livingston formulation. Ken Livingston, the Mayor of London, said this, and I quote, For far too long, the accusation of anti-Semitism has been used against anyone who is critical of the policies of the Israeli government as I have been. You raise the issue of anti-Semitism, you do it in bad faith, right, has been used. Livingston doesn't say by who, often the formulation doesn't say by who, but we know by who. So one element is this, is, is necessarily bad faith, right? Livingston doesn't say to the Board of Deputies of British Jews, you made a mistake, I wasn't anti-Semitic to the journalist, you made a mistake, 
Karadawi doesn't support Hitler. He doesn't say that. He says, you do this in bad faith in order to delegitimize my opposition to the Israeli government. So bad faith, but also a conflation of criticism of the Israeli government with embracing al-Qaradawi or with, um, you know, a, a little drunken spat with um, Now, interestingly, it's perfectly possible for people to respond to an accusation of anti-Semitism rationally. Yeah, people could simply respond to it. And, you know, Livingston could say, well, then, Cal Karadawi isn't an anti-Semite, or well, he could say whatever he wants to say, but he doesn't. What he does instead is take the discussion outside of the bounds of rational discourse with this formulation. I'm not going to answer you because you're doing this on purpose for other reasons. Astonishingly, the Livingston formulation comes up again and again and again and again and again. If you Google it, you'll find my examples. I've just published this paper in uh, Austrian journal called Transversal, which I will put online, which gives, I think, I can't remember how many examples, 25 examples of the same formulation being used. It's perfectly possible for people to respond to an accusation of anti-Semitism rationally. It's astonishing how often this irrational response, this response which sort of smashes up the possibility of discussion, is used. For example, Carol Churchill responds to Howard Jacobson by saying, you're doing this, it's the usual tactic. How long have they got, Lars? We've got 20 minutes right now, so like, we five minutes, I think. Okay. So, moving on to an, a, a, a point which I think is very important is this point of intentionality. As I said before, sociologists of race and racism, ra anti-racist and uh, activists are very, very comfortable with the idea that racism is usually not a product of the hatred of blacks or of Muslims or of Jews. It's not usually a product of hatred, it's usually a product of institutions, of practices, of discourse. It's usually something which people deny and which people are not aware that they're doing. In Britain, 10 or 15 years ago, I can't remember when, there was, 15 years ago, there was a landmark case where <clears throat> a judge, McPherson, judged that there was a problem of institutional racism within the Metropolitan Police. Everybody knew what that meant. It meant that there were practices and norms within the police force which led to racist outcomes for Stephen Lawrence in particular. Now, only the police federation, the kind of trade union of the policemen said, how dare you accuse my people of being racist? Because everybody else understood that this wasn't an accusation of racist intent on the part of police. Nowadays, when you raise the issue of anti-Semitism in regard to Carol Churchill or to Judith Butler or to anybody else, they will insist on a very strongly intentional notion of anti-Semitism. Carol Churchill will look inside her own mind. It's great because we now have access to the perpetrator. It's me. Right? So, so I can have a methodology which usually I can't use as a sociologist. I can look inside my own mind and I can find not only am I not anti-Semitic, but I hate anti-Semitism and I oppose anti-Semitism wherever I see it. So Carol Churchill looks inside her mind, 
She says, I'm not anti-Semitic, therefore, I don't have to relate to the argument. I have to explain why this malicious accusation is made. This is not how we normally deal with accusations of racism. Normally, we look at the argument. We look outside of ourselves, not inside of ourselves. We think about the parallels of the blood libel, about the, the history of boycotts and exclusions of Jews. We look at the history of uh, Israel-Palestine and, and the Islamist movement and all of the stuff that we would normally look at. And we make a judgment. It's not easy. We might judge it wrong. But we make a judgment about what is ethnic and what isn't. These guys insist that that isn't necessary. Why? Because they can look into their own hearts and say, I don't hate Jews. And they don't. End of discussion. So the, the, those twos and fronting intentionality are very, very interesting. I think. I'm going to leave it at that. Hopefully we might have a little time for discussion. Um, and I'm sure I've been unclear with various things, and people can talk, uh, ask me, can test me. Thank you, David. Um, given the time frame, even, uh, um, I do hope that uh, Robert uh, is uh, getting better. Um, uh, we still have, uh, we'll still have some time to discuss it, but I'm not going to talk forever. So you have to turn on me and cut me out of here. So, um, my name is Lars Rensman, as you can see uh, uh, from uh, the um, uh, PowerPoint. Um, I teach uh, political science at the University of Michigan, and um, uh, I intended to talk about the radical right, will not be so much about the radical right. Um, um, I intend to talk about the radical right uh, because at times um, we uh, uh, forget um, that there is still a quite strong alive radical right um, in uh, Europe uh, that is in fact um, uh, mobilizing anti-Semitism um, uh, and it's part of uh, the problem I want to address today um, that uh, even that in fact is very often denied um, in uh, the European public. Um, so, before I start to talk about that, I want to uh, address a few um, parameters of what we're dealing with uh, in the European context. Now, it doesn't come to any surprise to you that uh, um, Europe uh, is part of the problem. Europe takes part in what we witness here as a rise of uh, global anti-Semitism. And there are various indicators for that. Um, um, one is uh, the aforementioned uh, indicator that we have an uh, uh, enormous rise of anti-Semitic uh, incidents of violent acts of uh, hate crimes. Now, no matter what you do with statistics, uh, and we know that every, particularly police statistics, every country does a different job. Uh, I can assure you, uh, four is not the right number when it comes to Spain. Uh, uh, it's a fault of a, in a country where anti-Semitism is outrageous. And by all data that we have, this anti-Semitism in, in Spain is unbelievably widespread. And uh, you have to look for the anti-anti-Semites. It will be difficult to spot. I know a couple. Um, so, uh, but no Spain bashing here. It's a European problem. Uh, we have a rise of hate crime, we have a rise of uh, violent acts, uh, and uh, by all means that we have to figure that out, it's the highest that we ever had since 1945. And that's no kind of alarmism or anything. Um, we also have a rise of anti-Semitic and anti-Zionist attitudes, uh, particularly significant 
uh, over the last uh, 10 years, of course, with fluctuations, of course, with country-specific differences, and so on. But clearly, there's a rise, both anti-Semitism and uh, expressed anti-Semitism in the form of uh, anti-Zionism. Uh, we have, just to give you a, a couple of, uh, um, of polls or surveys that we have, um, uh, more than 50% of Europeans now uh, believe uh, either strongly or uh, somewhat um, that what the Jews are doing to the Palestinians isn't any better than what the Nazis did to the Jews. Um, now that classifies, to all, according to all uh, definitions that we have for anti-Semitism itself as anti-Semitism, um, um, it is equating uh, Jews and Israelis uh, with Nazis, it is uh, offensive and, uh, as I argued, uh, anti-Semitic. Um, that's the uh, average over Europe. That's the uh, European average. Again, the fluctuations. That's the European average. Um, that's why I have this rough number because, but it's uh, that's the overall uh, um, European average. Um, now, uh, then we have, of course, a rise of public events and campaigns. We have things arguably inconceivable just 20 years ago that uh, we have boycotts not just against Israelis. Uh, even boycotts against Jews. Uh, and the city of Rome Union leader has called that we should boycott all the Jewish uh, stores and shops. Um, we have boycotts of Jewish athletes, uh, of Jewish uh, uh, Israeli teams competing um, in uh, um, international competitions such as the Davis Cup in the city of Malmö. Uh, this uh, boycott campaign that was endorsed by the city council, uh, who apparently found the participation of uh, uh, Israelis in an international sports event in the city of Malmo offensive. Um, uh, um, we have uh, events like the cancellation of the Holocaust Memorial Day in various cities, including the city of, Catalonia, uh, the city of Barcelona and by the regional government of Catalonia in 2009 during the Gaza, uh, um, uh, the Gaza conflict in early 2009. Um, uh, with the argument that while a Holocaust against the Palestinians is happening in Barcelona, we cannot uh, uh, have uh, any memorial events for the Jews that were murdered during the Holocaust. Um, uh, now, these are just a few. I could uh, uh, spend a long time uh, explaining more about these few of the events and indicators of uh, the uh, rise of anti-Semitism in Europe, which really is the background here. Uh, for what I'm talking about. Um, uh, just a few more of those uh, polls and statistics. Um, uh, look at Spain here. 74% believe that Jews have too much power in international financial markets. Um, uh, and uh, again, you have this country uh, uh, specific variations, but uh, even this classical form of anti Semitism is alive and kicking. Um, um, now, this is, of course, debatable how you judge uh, what is classifies as anti-Semitism. Uh, it's part of the uh, classification struggle or a classification discourse. Uh, once again, they, uh, Spain is uh, uh, quite uh, um, at the forefront here, but uh, let's put this aside for now. Um, for mobilizations of political anti-Semitism, we're really talking about political anti-Semitism, not just, uh, you know, <coughs> what David pointed out, discursive aspects, really political anti-Semitism. Uh, the, uh, against the background of this rise of anti-Semitism, also anti-Semitic attitudes, um, uh, conditions have become uh, more favorable for political mobilizations of anti-Semitism, uh, again, arguably much more favorable than they have ever been uh, since 1945. 
uh, to target collect the collective Jew of Israel in particular, uh, um, uh, to use Israel and the Middle East's uh, conflicts in the Middle East uh, as a political top, uh, a topic has become uh, more important. Uh, in fact, it has become a wedge issue um, with one part of the edge of the wedge uh, uh, getting smaller and smaller. Um, a wedge issue uh, um, um, that um, arises, uh, that, that, that instigates this kind of moral panic that um, uh, David Birch was mentioning. Um, another favorable condition, you might say, is the fact that there are uh, globalization uh, losers. And I'm not talking about like the social, necessarily the social uh, 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 deprivation, but the subjective deprivation. People are unhappy, feel uneasy uh, with globalization and modernization. And uh, classically, just during the uh, just like during the uh, first industrial revolution uh, in the second post-industrial revolutions, it's uh, it's a classical anti-Semitic trope to blame. Uh, the Jews for uh, modernization effects uh, um, and uh, modernization crises. I'll get to, uh, back to that in a few minutes. Um, and we also observe an erosion of boundaries of uh, uh, the legitimate discourse about Jews. Um, and again, both aspects here, uh, the overt kind of anti-Semitism anti um, in uh, um, cartoons, uh, even in mainstream media, uh, um, just uh, spent a couple of weeks uh, reading uh, some particularly uh, Greek, Italian, uh, and Spanish newspapers, uh, Spain, Spain again, uh, uh, um, uh, and you'll find uh, the likelihood that you find anti-Semitic cartoons, even anti-Semitic statements, including interviews with David uh, Irving um, in uh, um, uh, mainstream, the second largest uh, paper of Spain, El Mundo, for example. Uh, uh, anti-Semitism, anti-Semitic discourse becomes much more legitimate, even in its, uh, both in its blatant form but also in its modernized uh, uh, variations. Um, uh, and both through the classical media and of course also through uh, new internet media. Now, until re recently, and that's something that uh, David also pointed out, uh, mainstream parties by and large have not used uh, anti-Semitism to mobilize people. So this kind of mobilization of anti-Semitism uh, uh, particularly by mainstream democratic parties, has been illegitimate. However, even in that case, as I have to qualify this, uh, there are some, again, there, there needs to be some uh, qualification. When I think about David Cameron, uh, what he was doing in Turkey, uh, I was wondering to what kind of audience he's appealing. Well, in a very subtle way, he didn't make an anti-Semitic statement, but he appealed to a certain uh, climate here, and he was clearly, I mean, this undoubtedly, as a conservative union-elect politician, uh, quite mainstream, I'd say, uh, uh, um, appealing to uh, anti-Semitic uh, sentiments to, uh, and particularly courting uh, 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 Turkey, which just at this point uh, has become uh, uh, um, uh, at the forefront of, uh, um, uh, um, of hostility against Israel and coalition building with uh, uh, state-sanctioned anti-Semitism of Iran. Um, so, uh, quite a move there. Uh, I also might mention that the German parliament, uh, known for being so pro-Israel, you know, the Germans, we have all learned from the past, everything's uh, great, forward-looking, um, uh, and we are the good partner uh, of Israel. The German parliament, just uh, a couple of months ago, um, uh, took a decision uh, unanimously, unanimously, to uh, uh, blame uh, uh, Israel for uh, uh, overreacting, this is the new uh, uh, phrasing, uh, overreacting to um, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the so-called peace activists of uh, the flotilla. 
Um, so uh, unanimously, from left to right, from conservative to liberal, from government to opposition, every, the entire parliament uh, supported that declaration. Now again, this is not a case of anti-Semitism, of course, uh, uh, but they usually, this kind of unanimous decision on any topic whatsoever, <coughs> let alone Iran or, or you name it, does not happen in the German parliament. So it's truly exceptional. It's also exceptional in the case of Israel. And it signifies a certain shift in uh, the discourse of climate that we operate here in Europe. Still, uh, to, make, to finish my point here, uh, there is space for the left in particular, for the right and the radical right, the radical left, to mobilize anti-Semitism uh, more overtly. That's not what's going to happen uh, uh, in context of the mainstream parties. Uh, well, uh, um, David Cameron was off to a good start. Let's see where he ends. Um, um, uh, but the context here is that actually there is space, uh, uh, there's demand for anti-Semitism uh, and there's space uh, to, uh, um, to mobilize anti-Semitism in the public uh, that has become more acceptable, has become more legitimate, um, um, and that includes, uh, again, in various cases, uh, mainstream media. Now, um, before I really turn to the radical right, there's one aspect that really is striking, and some scholars have already mentioned that, uh, in making uh, mobilizations of anti-Semitism, uh, political mobilizations of anti-Semitism, uh, possible again, or who are really, as in this political science terms, are providing a favorable condition uh, for the mobilization of anti-Semitism. And then that is, that is its denial. The denial uh, that anti-Semitism even exists, uh, um, uh, apart from being a charge used by uh, pro-Israel lobbyists, uh, um, that anti-Semitism uh, um, is a, a, a base problem uh, that we are facing. Uh, it starts with denying modernized forms of anti-Semitism, uh, um, as in uh, radical anti-Zionism. Um, uh, all of those uh, um, are just seen as only criticism of Israel. Uh, whenever uh, there's a phenomenon of anti-Semitism that uses the Middle East as a medium, uh, it is uh, outright criticism, it's only criticism of Israel, nothing else. It can never be, uh, as, soon, as soon as I substitute the word uh, uh, Jews um, by using the word Zionists, uh, it can no longer be anti-Semitic. Uh, and then, of course, uh, the, the lovely trope that we're confronted in here with in this context of denial is uh, that it is prohibited, it is banned from the European public to criticize Israel. <laughs> uh, that is, of course, like when you look at it, and if you just do in start, to, to make a media analysis, uh, it's quite ridiculous. Still, this charge is, is flourishing, it's blooming, it's, it's, uh, you find it everywhere. Uh, it's apparently, or uh, our people argue that it's impossible to, to criticize uh, Israel, uh, uh, even uh, if constantly by, uh, even within mainstream media, uh, the right of Israel to exist, uh, the right to Jewish self-determination is denied. Uh, there's also something we have talked about here already, of course, the denial of, anti of Islamic uh, anti-Semitism, uh, both at home and abroad. Uh, we might see this in the context of a, uh, um, what Robert Fine is called in impersonal Orientalism, uh, or uh, resurging Third Worldism, um, uh, that is uh, a kind of glorification of Third World countries, Third World leaders, um, uh, that are portrayed as uh, the truly good uh, forces of humankind uh, collectively and thus can do no harm and certainly cannot be anti-Semitic. Now, to get to my point with the radical right, one strategy that I have encountered 
to delegitimize, demonize Israel, many strategies that there are. Um, and actually, uh, in doing so, of course, also legitimate violence against Israelis and Jews. If you demonize and dehumanize Israel and Israelis, it becomes legitimate to, to act against them. If Israelis and Jews are Nazis, what do you do with Nazis? You fight against them. You, use, you, you resort, actually, to violence and violence is legitimate. Now, one way to, 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 to legitimize and demonize Israel is uh, to associate it with fascism again and again and again. Just Google Israel uh, and you'll run into these Nazi comparisons. Um, uh, um, and one way, of course, to associate it is today to associate Israel with then, the radical right. Radical right, by and large, it is resurging in Europe, but by and large, by the major mainstream public, it is uh, uh, not legitimate. Uh, because of the history, radical right is something you don't want to associate with. Now, we have cases, particularly in Eastern Europe, we even had some cases in there today in the Italian government, cases where radical right parties like Lega Nord are part of, a, uh, of the government, even. Uh, as junior partners, but still, by and large, there's somewhat important sanitaire, radical right is bad. Uh, we had some bad experiences with that in Europe. Um, so one of the moves that has been done recently is to associate not just Israel with, with uh, Nazism, but actually those who uh, show solidarity with Israel with the radical right. Um, generally, to create this, this myth that the radical right is really on Israel's sides. Aside. And that really gives us justification, justification to attack it. Um, now, what I've looked at in, in my study here is um, that uh, radical right is quite uh, anti-Semitic and uh, quite anti-Israel, explicitly so, increasingly, increasingly so. However, the claim is, the denial is, that the European uh, radical right is now uh, uh, anti-Semitic um, uh, today. Uh, and it's pres presumably become pro-Israel and pro-Jewish. One scholar, Martin Munzel, claims it outright in a, in a book and, and uh, has given, as far as I know, talks at many Jewish centers here in America, uh, uh, claiming that Islamophobia has replaced anti-Semitism in Europe, which is quite uh, along that discourse that David mentioned, and the radical right is now pro-Israel and pro-Jewish. Now, what is it, examples does he give? He gives the example of the Flams Belang, the Flams Belang in uh, Belgium, which tried to reach out to the uh, new Jewish community unsuccessfully uh, uh, and launched anti-Muslim, uh, um, anti-immigrant campaigns. Uh, the other example is that there is a Jew uh, that works for the uh, Freedom Party of Austria. Well, amazing evidence. Um, I have some other evidence, and I uh, uh, analyzed uh, the platforms and campaigns of radical right parties. Uh, and we see that really the Flans Belang is the only party, uh, the radical right party of any uh, uh, relevance, uh, if I talk just about rad relevant radical right parties that actually compete uh, electorally and um, are, uh, uh, um, have chances at times uh, to enter local, regional, or national parliaments. Uh, and the only party is actually the Flans Belang where we don't find uh, a high salience of anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism, and anti-Israel. Uh, discourse. Now I have to see how much time do I have left. Um, so we look at the platforms of the radical right. This discourse that associates the radical right with being pro-Israel, pro-Jewish, is of course, uh, um, uh, from all uh, I could uh, find out, um, uh, um, wrong. Um, in fact, uh, the uh, radical right increasingly uses and remobilizes anti-Semitism. For sometimes, uh, uh, the new radical right hasn't done so. But now it's increasingly focusing in its campaigns 
uh, and political statements of Israel as an aggressor, and the fight against imperialism, including, of course, American imperialism, and the Middle East. Uh, of course, it also mobilizes against immigrants and Muslim minorities in many cases, uh, uh, but really it addresses these new global issues and uh, in many uh, cases uses anti-Zionist anti -Zionist, uh, propaganda and ideologies uh, um, uh, in uh, their campaigning. Um, now in that context, the extreme right specifically attributes uh, to the Jews the power of global uh, international institutions, of multinational banks, of cultural change, cosmopolitan cultural change, and, uh, change and global wars. Uh, Jews appear as destroying nations, as string posts behind globalization that have, uh, uh, and of course there's no right to uh, uh, Jewish self-determination uh, um, and no right of Israel to exist. Uh, what we also notice is against this uh, claims this, of denial uh, that we're facing uh, um, um, not just in the public but also in the scholarly community uh, is a split in the radical right between domestic and international uh, um, positions. Uh, domestically, there is uh, uh, um, very often in many cases uh, propaganda or hostility against Muslims, against immigrants, um, but as soon as it comes to the international level, uh, in most cases, um, the uh, uh, so-called Islamic struggle against the Jews is uh, classified as heroic and uh, glorified. Now, I want to uh, add a couple of uh, um, uh, thesis, hypothesis on uh, what I uh, see here, um, not just in the context of the radical right, but in the broader context uh, of denial and favorable conditions uh, for the radical right to mobilize anti-Semitism and actually for other agents in the European public to mobilize anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism in Europe uh, emerges today in multiple new publics, in multiple new contexts, and the radical rights reloaded political anti-Semitism that we find if we take a close look at uh, uh, across Europe, uh, their platforms and campaigns, represents one, but clearly contrary to what uh, some uh, people, I think uh, Robert Fine has pointed that out, uh, say, only one manifestation of such political anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism benefits hereby from a denial. Um, uh, modernized forms are never recognized or uh, almost never recognized and open forms of anti-Semitism, anti-Jewish hostility uh, become um, more acceptable. Um, and increasingly we see Israel is used as a medium, um, and so uh, anti-Jewish hostility uh, is not recognized. Uh, that is part of a, a process of changing discursive boundaries, um, uh, in which uh, it has become increasingly common in popular discourse to blame Jews and Israel for anti-Semitism. So if anything happens, it's uh, uh, the, the conflict in the East, Middle East fault uh, that makes people attack synagogues. Uh, it's just a reaction to actions of uh, Israel and the Israeli military. Uh, uh, just as even in the Middle East, uh, in, the, in this interpretive scheme, um, uh, even in the Middle East, uh, anti-Semitism is, uh, and uh, terrorism against Israelis is just a reaction. Uh, against uh, Israeli policies and Israelis in Europe. Um, fourth uh, hypothesis, the radical rights, anti-Semitic political mobilizations the, with under slogans such as stop Zionist aggression are largely indistinguishable from uh, those of the radical left. It's really difficult uh, when you see how the, this modernized anti-Semitism movement in the radical right 
very often articulates itself uh, um, uh, and uh, um, what kind of uh, uh, um, framing is used uh, to attack uh, Jews. And in many cases now, of course, we actually see not just the ideological convergence, but also even an organizational alliance. Uh, again, think of the example of the flotilla, where German left-wing parliamentarians, uh, together with uh, martyrs and uh, uh, radical rightists from Turkey, uh, Turkish nationalists together, uh, um, 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 uh, entered uh, uh, the so-called uh, peace activism. Um, and uh, so this is part of, a, of an anti-Jewish uh, uh, ethnic nationalism in, in which the, the third world um, um, is, uh, and third world peoples are glorified, uh, but uh, um, the Jewish state uh, um, has no right to national self-determination. Um, so finally, uh, fifth, the anti-Semitism can be, in the theoretical terms, uh, to some extent, anti-Semitism is a lot of things because it's such a flexible form of, uh, uh, and logically contradictory, contradictory, irrational form of hatred. Anti-Semitism is, among other things, an objectified form of anti-modernity. Um, it uh, uh, expresses and personifies um, a dissatisfaction, unease, within uh, uh, the global uh, condition, um, an uneasiness in uh, postmodernity, and uh, particularly, of course, uh, that becomes, uh, um, you can see that uh, it becomes uh, very often more articulated uh, when you add to this uh, global economic crises. However, this uneasiness in the modern world uh, with its rapid cultural change is, uh, again, uh, very often projected to the Jews uh, and then interpreted as a global Jewish conspiracy. Uh, and Israel in that context, ironically, is charged of being too particularistic and too uh, nationalistic. At the same time, it is cosmopolitan. It is too, uh, seen as too cosmopolitan at the forefront of globalization. Logical contradictions? Yes, abundantly so, but that is part of the nature of anti-Semitism. Contradictions don't matter. Um, and uh, uh, finally, uh, we can interpret some of the rising anti-Semitism in the context of uh, post-colonial guilt projections. Um, uh, uh, yes, we admit that there have been European crimes. Yes, there are, there, we admit that the Holocaust happened in Germany, that happened in Europe. Um, but uh, it is uh, 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 much more convenient for those uh, to project uh, um, the uh, problem of colonization now to Israel as the alleged uh, new uh, colonizer. And let me uh, conclude with one more remark and consideration. Um, uh, when we talk about cosmopolitanism, and of course traditionally Jews are identified with being cosmopolitan, it is forced upon them. It is a forced uh, Jews are in this discourse are not supposed to have any choice. And this is part of also uh, 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 um, many academic discourses glorify this kind of image of the cosmopolitan Jew. It is forced upon Jews. Every country is celebrated as, uh, as a nation state. Uh, just think of the World Cup. Uh, but if uh, um, uh, a Ghanaian player, as it happened in 2006, uh, hold up the, the uh, Israeli flag uh, because he played for that country, played for Ghana in that contest, but uh, he played in Israel. He had a lot of sympathies for his uh, uh, um, friends in Israel. He was uh, attacked uh, by the Ghanaian uh, Soccer Association and by all kinds of African and Arab countries, and certainly also within the European public. It's not legitimate. The one country that is not uh, that uh, uh, is uh, 
uh, or the one group of people who don't have the right to self-determination are Jews, so there's this kind of forced cosmopolitanism. Just these some theses, in addition to my descriptive analysis of uh, uh, the radical right, and I'm happy to uh, also take questions. Thank you. I think we have 10 minutes, so if people want to ask really short, sharp questions, we'll try and use them. Uh, somebody chair it. Dina, come and chair it. <laughs> And my argument is precisely that they do not believe that they're Jew-haters, they're not people who hate Jews. And if one defines anti-Semitism through hatred of Jews, then one misses actually the most important and the most dangerous anti-Semitism, which is people who don't hate Jews, but who nevertheless act and speak in anti-Semitic ways. Um, and, and if you ask, you know, you make an accusation of anti-Semitism, people tend to look within themselves and find themselves not guilty, rather than looking at what they say and analysing whether or not what they say is problematic. That's my point. I have a question, <coughs> if I may, um, in terms of David Cameron's um, comments about the Well, uh, David. Why don't you make that statement? Uh, um, uh, who's, Please repeat the question. Yeah, yeah. The question is, uh, uh, whose audience? Um, uh, what is the audience David Cameron is speaking to? He makes these kind of uh, his comments as he uh, did in in Turkey. Well, uh, I'd say I mean there are two audiences, right? I mean the one audience is uh, um, uh, the Turkish audience, and the other is the audience at home. And I do think it, this is included. Um, I do think. I hope this was a, a big mistake, as uh, uh, Paul uh, remarked in the conversation yesterday, that he will recognize. But uh, uh, at this point, this is—I think—it's uh, not a good sign, uh, uh, and it, it is appealing to, to uh, uh, I'd say, to a domestic audience as well. Cameron's interesting because he's—he's he's making unprecedented budget. I mean, he wants to cut the British budget by 25 percent. He's making really serious cuts. But he's doing so with a liberal <coughs> ideological cover. It's new for Britain. It's quite interesting. And a liberal ideological cover sits very nicely with the uh, comments about Gaza. Thank you. Um, questions for, for each of you briefly. Lars, can you unpack a little bit of your um, uh, categories? I, I'm, I'm, I really don't fully understand what you mean by postmodern anti-Semitism. Can you talk a little bit more about the notion of Israel as the collective Jew and whether or not you think this is a problematic um, 
formulation or, or what you feel about that. Um, can you talk about whether there is some ways and if it's important or not to separate anti-Zionism from anti-Semitism? Um, and um, and uh, post-colonial guilt projection. Could you say a little bit more about that? And then just to use that to connect to... Um, to uh, I'm sorry. What you ask gives way for another lecture. I mean, with postmodern anti-Semitism, I mean that uh, uh, it has become legitimate to uh, make certain statements that have not been legitimate before. So it's basically just describing a certain condition. And part of this, in terms of content, is that you celebrate uh, national identity. It's a resurgent uh, third worldism, or as I call it, actually, Robert Fine has called it inverse Orientalism. You project basically uh, uh, something on the third world, glorify and celebrate this different cultural pluralism. Uh, everyone is different, uh, and celebrate actually collectively. But at the same time, of course, one collective is accepted from that rule, and that is the collective Jew of Israel. Uh, so one nation does not have a right, is not celebrated. We know that all nations have historical, uh, the borders and boundaries of nations are, are historically arbitrary. You can see uh, uh, the Maoris are claiming uh, uh, being natives, well, they came there 500 years ago and expelled the, the, the natives. I mean, you have all kinds of circles of life where this entire idea that there's an essential, existential essential border that has been given by God uh, uh, is, is contested, right? Boundaries are contested, states are contested, and so forth. Uh, but the fact is, like, only one country is, is delegitimized uh, uh, in its borders and its existence. And that's what I'm calling in this context, like, there's a celebration of, of, uh, of plurality, of, of plural nations, but at the same, that fits apparently somehow nicely with the idea that one state doesn't have the right uh, to exist as such. Uh, uh, just maybe briefly to the post-colonial uh, guild aspect, uh, uh, I think um, guilt is always like a strong motivational factor for, for kind of resentments. You know, no one wants to live with guilt. Uh, I can see there's a, a concept of secondary anti-Semitism, particularly in the German context. Jews are uh, blamed uh, by their very existence, uh, uh, because of their very existence, for uh, steering uh, um, feelings of anti-Semitism. By their very existence, they're blamed for the memory of the Holocaust. The memory of the Holocaust is not something you you know, you like to, uh, it's not an issue you like to remember. It's not that uh, Germans love to just remember the Holocaust, right? It's kind of uncomfortable. Uh, and so if something's uncomfortable, you, uh, you blame the messenger. Um, and the messenger, Jews are seen as the messenger uh, uh, in many contexts. And that has becomes, gets a different dimension in the European context uh, uh, where the, the, the history of, of uh, colonialism and colonization uh, is also split off, projected onto, as I argued, uh, to Israel. But I, I probably yeah. have something yeah. to you Yeah. Uh, David, you're 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 about saying the Israeli idea of Israel's moral panic. Well, looking at the folklore, is really where the action is for understanding people who are not the action of Israel right now. But the only thing, and it's a great lecture, I have. Difficulty with the third of my line on this. Uh, we, use, we almost minimize that uh, anti-Semitism isn't a problem in so much, not in real life. Uh, no? All right. So maybe 
I mean, it's a huge problem, but it's a problem in terms of discourse, in terms of the ways in which... I disagree. Where's Michael Lyon on this? Michael, yeah. 2008 statistics, number of attacks on in, uh, England on Jews... Just before my comment, obviously, yeah. as it becomes more of a problem in discourse, yeah. there's a danger that it becomes more of a problem in the street, and that may certainly be starting, yeah. but that's not where we need to really focus our attention at the moment, in my view. Okay. We, uh, we tend to look okay. in the UK at antisemitism in two ways. One is incidents and the other is discourse. And for the last few years, in parallel to our incidents report, we've been publishing the discourse report, which, as you can imagine, uh, takes an awful lot of time to write because of the way in which uh, our guy in the office has to work his way through all the different issues, but nevertheless, we feel it's important to, to, to try and measure discourse in the same scientific way that we measure incidents. The point about incidents in 2008-2009, and indeed 2010, so the first is that um, Operation, well, firstly, uh, the incursion in Lebanon, and then uh, Operation Cast Lead, uh, led to enormous spikes, particularly uh, Cast Lead. When the incidents started to decline, they didn't, as David mentioned, decline to the previous level, but remained at a high level. So we're seeing certainly a higher ambient level than the center. Um, the first six months of this year, we have recorded a figure that was less than the first six months of last year, but nevertheless higher than 2008, which I think proves that particular point. I would say also that. Probably nobody belches in an anti-Semitic fashion in the UK, and we don't get to hear about it. And therefore, our capacity to measure is that much greater than everybody else, and that's why we're now picking the police up to measure racism, uh, because we are, we've got 25 years of experience of doing so in a, in, in a scientific manner. Right, the only reason I mention it is human rights, that's put out first, and also the tax in England. In 2008 and 2009, it was approximately 150. I think it's averaging about uh, 600 to 700. Uh, I wouldn't like to say it's averaging because it's like this. Yeah. But I mean, it's, it's also a trend that in Canada there's about approximately 1,200 anti Semitic attacks last year. No, I talked to you before. No, I will talk to you. No, 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 you're not citing my brief. The, the number is for all incidents, and this is what Michael Wine is trying to convey to you, that there is violence and that there is discourse and verbal and visual, and one has an impact on the other. But still, this is countable, and this is less countable, though they together have they nourished one another. Yeah, there weren't even a thousand all over the world. I'm just talking about minimizing the, the number of anti-Semitic attacks in each country and the actual number of anti-Semitic attacks of uh, Muslims is very, very low in Canada, in England, in the United States. Not so, not so. The police right. are now trying to... The fact is that until now, anti-Muslim incidents have been measured by Islamist groups and scientific evaluation was done of them by one of Robert's colleagues at Warwick and found that there were double and treble counting incidents. The reality, however, is that 
there are many anti-Muslim incidents, and now the police um, are uh, trying to put in place a much better system of measuring anti-Muslim incidents, uh, anti in part because they are now committed, um, as a result of the government instruction, uh, to publish on an annual basis racist incidents which can be disaggregated uh, in terms of both victim group and offenders. Uh, and therefore they have to prove now, they now have to provide that to the Come on, let's talk about the panel. David, may I make a short comment? David, David. 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 Um, I think that, I mean, I just like to, um, to underline a point which has just been made, to make a second point. The, the, the point which David made and the point which Mike White made is that all these statistics need to be read in terms of the reporting mechanisms in each context. And this is the ABC of social science. And I, I, I find it depressing that people that are able to speak at a conference like this who don't understand the ABC of social science. The second point is a political point, which is to say that to frame the issue in terms of a competition, are there more anti-Jewish incidents than anti-Muslim incidents is extremely, is extremely unhelpful, which is not to say we are all unproblematically brothers and sisters and walk, and walk together shoulder to shoulder and there's a rainbow coalition. But the problems of, of societies in Europe that we face now are how these, how these societies deal with difference. It's not that all differences are the same, but there is an overarching problematic that um, that reaches both anti-Muslim and, and anti-Jewish incidents, and to frame that in terms of a competition will not help us to understand what is going on in Britain. I just wanted to add that we do monitoring, you do in other countries, but we know the shortcomings. Of course, of course. If no one can belch in, in England, but many people can belch in Afghanistan. English people don't belch anyway. No, no, no. Yes, I would like to make a short comment. Uh, a year and a half, I mean, a day and a half into this conference, I am stunned, I am flabbergasted at the lack of imagination and the utter stupidity of the uh, anti-Semitism. I mean, they're repeating the same things uh, over and over and over and over for a thousand years. Uh, and I, and what I'm trying to say is here is that Jews, as known as the people of the book and the primary learning, we obviously see among anti-Semites there's a resentment that and, and an unwillingness to learn and to evolve. Okay. And <laughs> generation that's reaching to a different set group of people who have not had the benefit of the previous generation's that we have got going in the European Sociological Association in Europe. 
Um, research network number 31 of the European Sociological Association is a network which studies the sociology of racism, anti-Semitism, and inter-ethnic relations. Um, it's it's uh, organized by myself and Robert Fine and, and uh, a number of people in Europe, and we're very proud of it as a space in which anti-Semitism can be researched and discussed seriously in Europe, and a space in which the relationships between racism and anti-Semitism can be discussed in Europe. Um, and I just wanted to give people a heads up, the next conference is this time next year in Geneva. So if people are in social science or history, or, or, or we're not bothered about disciplinary uh, problems, but our research network is, is, I think, something very, very interesting, and I would encourage people to find the call for papers, which we will be putting out, and to see if they can come to Geneva next year for the European Sociological Association. Thank you. Uh,